Now for Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's premier law talk radio show. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. Good morning. This is Colleen Quinn of the law firm of Locke & Quinn, and welcome to Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's Law Talk Radio Show. Today we're going to talk about understanding the myths of adopting a child, um, which there's a lot of mystery and a lot of myth and a lot of misconceptions um, around adoption um, in America as well as international adoption. So it's going to be a great uh, topic today. And remember, you can always call into the show at 804-454-1366 with your questions. Remember that Raising the Bar Law Talk Radio Show also is recorded on the Lock and Quinn Facebook Live page. So if you miss any of the uh, shows, you can always go watch them there. And they also are being uploaded to the Raising the Bar website. <clears throat> Remember that the Raising the Bar Law Talk Radio Show brings an exciting and varied array of legal topics to listeners throughout Central Virginia and especially in the greater Richmond area. At least once per week on Wednesday morning at 9 a.m., you can join us for the one-hour show and we will share various legal tips, uh, not just from us as attorneys, but also with the experts that we bring to the show. Um, other shows have featured issues such as employment law, workers' compensation, access to legal services, and a plethora of other, <laughs> other topics. Um, also remember that Locke & Quinn is a personal injury and family law firm located conveniently at Willow Lawn, um, and we have uh, a lot of dining options, so you can <laughs> come get your beefy burrito, as I always say, or your now your Chick-fil-A sandwich, and your legal services all in one-stop shopping. So joining me today is my associate, Katie Dean. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, Colleen. And uh, Katie's going to be interviewing me, um, although Katie also practices adoption law. Um, with regard to uh, the issues of adopting a child. All right. And just so that our listeners know that they're listening to someone highly qualified on this topic today, um, let me first give you a little bit more background um, on Colleen. She is a national authority on adoption law, having done thousands of adoptions over the past 30 years and presented and published hundreds of times on the subject. She's the immediate past president of the Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproduction Attorneys, which is the only credentialed academy for adoption attorneys with about 500 fellows. And she also currently sits on the board of trustees of that organization. She's the owner of the Adoption and Surrogacy Law Center. And she's also the co-author of the Adoption Procedures and Forms book published by Virginia CLE, um, which is used by Virginia lawyers who are practicing in the area of adoption. So ho hopefully I know my stuff, right? <laughs> yes. As you can see, uh, the information on today's program really is coming from an adoption expert. So, Colleen, let's turn to today's topic. Great. Um, I think the first thing a lot of people want to know um, is what types of children are available for adoption um, in the United States? And that's a great question because a lot of folks come into our office and they think that there are going to be young, healthy infants readily available for adoption. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that the children that are available for adoption in the United States are predominantly the ones that are in the foster care system. Mm -hmm. And we typically don't see a child freed up for adoption until a minimum age of six. And more um, often, the children that are in the foster care system tend to be more in, along the, the lines of ages about 8 to mm -hmm. 17. Um, so uh, it, it is a matter of 
um, uh, there not being a large supply, I mean, it just comes back to fundamental economics, there's not a large supply of uh, newborn healthy um, infants or even newborn drug-exposed or special needs infants um, in the United States. And we're actually seeing those numbers um, go continue to go down. I mm -hmm. saw, um, in fact, statistically the other day, um, uh, something that showed that uh, young adults and teens um, also uh, basically the statistics for them having sex uh, had dropped as well. And of course, you know, if you're going to if you're going to have babies available for adoption, right. sex has to happen <laughs> in there somewhere. <laughs> um, so what about healthy newborn infants? I mean, are what is what is the availability of them in the United States for adoption? There is a much larger demand than there mm -hmm. is a supply. Um, so typically I will tell families, you know, that to expect to, um, to wait about a year. Now, if you're really um, good and you, I, I call it opening as many doors of opportunity as possible mm -hmm. in your search process, which might mean signing up with more than one, um, what we call all-inclusive adoption agency that helps to find the child, um, along with uh, doing a lot of things in terms of networking, posting profiles on various uh, websites that allow you to post their profiles. If you do a lot of different things aggressively, then you might be able to get that adoption done within six months. Um, but there's actually a lot of effort that has to go into um, identifying or finding that situation for a healthy newborn. Mm -hmm. um, and then even the children that um, are opiate exposed, um, fetal alcohol syndrome exposed, um, or have other special needs um, that are uh, newborn children. Um, likewise, there are, there are not, like I'll have clients come in and they'll say, well, we just feel compelled um, either through church or, you know, whatever's compelling them mm -hmm. or they had an adoption in their family. We feel compelled to adop adopt a child in need. And I'm like, well, then you're pretty much looking at a, a child that's in the foster care system that's an older child because those are those are really the children that are in need. Right. Um, there aren't there isn't this large amount of young babies out there, you know, available to adopt. Right. Um, so what about adoptions from other countries? Are there children available in other countries? Um, there are, but again, statistically, the number of international adoptions has been dropping dramatically for a whole variety of reasons. Um, one, we've seen countries open and close their doors to adoptions. Um, we also have seen countries uh, taking longer to free their children up for adoption. Mm -hmm. I was actually reading the other day, we've got a, a lot of countries that are doing a better job of moving children out of orphanages and into um, family-style homes in a number of countries. And so um, the many foreign countries have tried to do a better job of taking care of their own rather than sending children you know, mm -hmm. outside of the country. Uh, better jobs of locating relatives that might take the, the children in. So you typically don't see a child available for adoption from a, a foreign country until uh, they're about a year old or older that are, have been freed up for adoption. Now, there are cases where you might be able to get a newborn, but they statistically are, are uh, a lesser number of cases. And um, so the other thing about adopting internationally is that uh, most of these adoptions have to go through the Hague Treaty. Mm -hmm. And so you have to use somebody that has been accredited under the Hague. And the accrediting um, companies have gotten... Um, a little bit more stringent in their accreditation. And so the number of folks out there that are accredited to do this has dropped. So uh, just a variety of factors have made it harder to get a, a child from another country. 
the um, the countries such as Haiti and Ethiopia, et cetera, um, tend to s still be you know sending a lot of their children um, to the U.S. Um, and of course, there are missionaries that folks that will go and, and will come in on what we call a special juvenile immigrant status, where the child mm -hmm. has special needs. Like you've seen children um, that we've had in our office um, who have had severe burns, or mm -hmm. they're HIV infected, or they've they've got uh, needs where they need really really um, good medical care. Right. And so we'll have folks bring um, those type of children in. The um, the other downside about international adoptions is a lot of times the adoptive parents won't get as much information about the genetics or the prenatal care or the background of the child. Mm -hmm. um, so there are, are definitely some different issues um, with adopting internationally that are, are not quite as much as of an issue when we see adoptions happen domestically. Mm -hmm. So how do children get adopted? What are, what are the different ways that that happens? Um, and that is a great question because if you go onto the, any website mm -hmm. <laughs> you just you just just go to the internet and you google adoption um, you get all sorts of different entities that come up you know most of them with a, an a at the beginning like you know angel adoptions yeah. and adoptions are us and you know those sorts of things <laughs> and uh, it's hard to figure out um, what do all these entities mean but the adoption world basically boils down into the world of doing an agency adoption, and I call that the all-inclusive resort. Um, <laughs> this is where you sign up with an agency, and they are going to locate the right placement situation, get all the information on the placing mom and, and dad, um, figure out if there's more than one possible birth father, uh, basically do handle the legalities, take the entrustment or relinquishment from the birth parents. They are gonna do everything as part of that price tag in terms of uh, doing that adoption. That's the all-inclusive agency. Mm -hmm. And then on the agency side, uh, we have the nonprofit agencies, but we also have uh, public agencies, our departments of social services. So uh, uh, foster care adoptions actually fall into the agency adoption world. Um, it's just that the foster care adoptions are gonna come with subsidies and they're gonna be the least cost adoptions. Mm -hmm. And then most of our foreign adoptions also fall into the agency world because they are being done either through nonprofit agencies or through foreign governments. Mm -hmm. So I like to divide the adoption world into two different worlds because it's the easiest way of kind of being able to navigate all those things on the Internet. So we have the agency side, which can include the all-inclusive nonprofit agency as well as your public agencies. And then on the other side, we have private adoption or in Virginia, we call it parental placement, and in other states, we call it independent or direct. Mm -hmm. And that is where the placing parent locates the adoptive parents directly, not necessarily through an agency. It could be through an attorney. It could be through an agency. But basically, they are doing a direct placement with the adoptive parents. And we're seeing those types of adoptions uh, increasingly go up where, um, you know, little um, Janie, um, is pregnant and the family knows and now that adoptions are no longer quite as taboo or having an, unwanted, uh, an unexpected pregnancy is not quite as taboo. Little Janie's pregnant, the family knows, and Aunt Rosa knows somebody um, from work that has been wanting to adopt that's unable to have children. And so we're seeing more and more of those types of good old-fashioned networking mm -hmm. you know, adoptions going up. And so that's kind of how adoptions are happening. Okay. So with all these different types of adoptions, um, what are the costs that people are looking at to do an adoption? Yes. So the 
people are sometimes get sticker shock when they come yeah. in the office and I tell them, <laughs> this is how much your adoption is going to cost. They're like, really? Yeah. So the your adoptions of children out of foster care are going to be the least expensive because they come with subsidies. In Virginia, there's a $2,000 subsidy allowed for the attorney fees and costs in addition to the subsidies that typically come with the child, and the child often um, also is on Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And so uh, and those children, you typically don't have to come out of pocket, especially if you've been certified as a, as a foster parent or you've been certified as a um, a adoptive parent willing to take a child out of foster care, then uh, usually the cost of the home study is also covered. So those are kind of your least cost, no cost adoptions, your children out of foster care. Then we switch over to the world of the parental or private placement. If somebody locates a child on their own within Virginia, they actually can do that adoption under $15,000. And um, if they locate the child on their own outside of Virginia, then they're still looking at maybe doing it for under about 20000 assuming the, the placing parent doesn't need a lot of assistance with mm -hmm. living expenses. Um, and that really, the parental placements, private placements, are your lower cost adoptions. Then when we go to those all-inclusive agencies, those domestic agencies that pretty much find the child for you, do it mm -hmm. all, um, we're actually now seeing the numbers in the twenty-five to fifty thousand dollar range for a domestic agency placement. Um, then our foreign adoptions through agencies, usually an agency in the U.S. is working with an agency in another country or the government of the other country. Um, we are seeing those adoptions in the forty to fifty thousand dollar range, um, with some exceptions for some adoptions out of Haiti, Ethiopia, some mm -hmm. of the more um, third world countries, where you might see the price tag drop a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of misconception about what adoption cost, and um, you know some folks pay a pretty hefty price tag um, in order to adopt a child. Mm -hmm. So what are the basic requirements in order to be approved to adopt a child? Well, the big thing is having a home study done. And I have this great cartoon where um, there's, a, there's a couple meeting with their social worker and she's handing them a goldfish bowl. And she says, if, if you bring the goldfish back alive in six months, you'll pass the home study. <laughs> Clients get really nervous about the, the home study, and I tell them it's not the white glove test. Right. Um, but if you do have the boa constrictor or, you know, the, the pit bulls, you probably want to send those off to, you know, some other neighbors. And right. you need to lock up all the guns. And um, the biggest thing on the home study is, uh, one, you, you cannot have a chronic illness. Um, so I have had folks that are um, HIV positive, that are cancer survivors, et cetera, um, pass the home study. Um, but if you have a severe illness where you might die next year, you're, that's probably not going to be somebody that gets home study certified. Mm -hmm. And then in addition, the key thing is not having a criminal record or a CPS record that's going to bar you from adopting. So uh, typically, if you have, there, there's something called barrier crimes. So there's a whole list of barrier crimes, um, and, and that includes a variety of horrible crimes that will bar someone from adopting. But I did have clients come in one time, and I started asking them about their, their criminal history to make sure they passed the home study. And uh, typically, if it's a felony um, you know, within the last 10 years, that might fall within the barrier crimes. 
um, and then certain misdemeanors do as well. Well, this uh, the the gentleman, the adoptive father, and this was a parental placement, so the the birth mother had already selected them, um, was was content with this family, wanted to place with this family, and uh, so but the but the adoptive father had uh, a misdemeanor for um, attempted assault um, with a missile. And I said, well, what is that? <laughs> and he said, well, I had this road rage incident where somebody cut me off. And you know how you keep your change in the little compartment sometimes for tolls and whatnot? Well, he grabbed his handful of change and threw it out the window. And there happened to be a police officer that mm -hmm. saw it. And so he was convicted of a misdemeanor of um, attempted assault with a missile. And um, I said, did you have an attorney? He said, no, because I think he could have pled that thing down. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, it was a nine and a half year old misdemeanor. So we actually had to just do a custody arrangement until the next six months cleared and he was able to then pass the home study so that they could go ahead and adopt. So that is a, a big thing you can't have any crime that's going to bar you from adopting yeah. and then also of course if you have any found it child protective service charge that's going to bar anybody from adopting right. as well but generally um, as long as you have the financial wherewithal to uh, care for a child and you're morally um, and physically suitable mm -hmm. um, then uh, the home study is going to be uh, something that can easily be passed and that is that is one of the fundamental things needed in order to do an adoption. Right. So don't throw your change out the window. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about age limits? Are there any age limits on um, being able to adopt? Certain countries have age limits. And in fact, it's kind of weird. Um, some of these countries have these age limits where the combined age of the, uh, the, the two parents that are going to adopt can't uh, be more than like age 100 or more hmm. than 75. So it's kind of, <laughs> kind of a weird way of doing it, you know, because you could have, you know, a 50-year-old a and a 25-year-old and you would think that would be maybe more problematic than their combined age, right? right? Um, and some agencies in the United States have certain age restrictions, but there are no age restrictions at all in the world of parental or private placement. So um, I've had uh, families in their you know, 60s, 50s uh, adopt because mm -hmm. that was the right family that the placing mom decided upon and that she selected. And of course, you know, all of our, our grandparent placements, our relative placements, right. there clearly are no age restrictions on those. And, and with the opioid crisis, we're seeing more and more relative and grandparent placements um, go up mm -hmm. because of um, folks that are addicted that are not able to care for their, their kids. So grandma and grandpa step, step in. in. Yeah. yeah. Um, can a child be adopted by more than two parents in Virginia? We are working on that. Um, in other states, especially um, states like California mm -hmm. and states that are a little more progressive, uh, they actually have uh, statutes and case law that allow folks to um, do a three-parent adoption um, and a four-parent adoption, and which is great because in some cases uh, there actually are three or four parents parenting that child, and mm -hmm. it just gives the more legal stability for the child. We do not have that in Virginia. I can get a three-way custody order or a four-way custody order, and you've seen us do mm -hmm. that in the office. We might have a same-sex lesbian couple um, where the one lesbian had her child by her, a former spouse, 
And so we might have um, both the, uh, the father of the child, the mother of the child, and then the biological mother's new wife um, all having joint custody. Um, but we don't have a way yet in Virginia, by statute at least, to do a three-parent or four-parent adoption. What about unmarried parents? Um, can they adopt in Virginia? Not yet. I'm working right now. Um, Delegate Alfonso Lopez just mm -hmm. put in uh, a, a bill um, when, uh, which previously I've tried that Equality Virginia has put in and other sponsors have put in in prior years uh, to allow what we call second parent adoptions. So in Virginia, we can do a, a step-parent adoption where the, the adoptive parents are married, mm -hmm. or we can do an adoption by a married couple, which includes, um, you know, ever since marriage equality, includes same-sex married couples, um, or we can do an adoption by a single parent. Um, but right now, under our current statute, we can't do an adoption by two or more unmarried folks. Um, however, with the second-parent adoption bill, if we could get that past, we would have that flexibility. And a lot of other states have that flexibility. Um, and I actually had a case where um, we had a gentleman who was at um, one of the military schools, military academies. And I found out that evidently you're not allowed to uh, sire a child if you are in a military academy and stay in the academy. Um, well, he had somehow accidentally sired a child with his girlfriend. And so we looked at what the options were, and the girlfriend, um, he was from Virginia, but the girlfriend was from Colorado. We actually were able to do an adoption in Colorado. Well, I referred it to a Colorado mm -hmm. colleague, and they were able to do an adoption between the girlfriend and her father, which got my guy in the military academy off the hook of being a legal father, so he was able to stay in the academy, and then after he graduated, he was able to adopt his own child back, which was which is interesting. But um, in addition to um, just unmarried couples that may not want to marry for whatever reason, mm -hmm. you know, the, the marriage tax penalty, um, in addition to those situations, there really is a need for having the ability to have unmarried folks be able to adopt a child because we see it a lot with maybe grandmother is co-parenting with daughter right. or grandmother is co-parenting with son. Um, or we have two foster parents that are unmarried that have helped co-foster parent a child, and they're both equally just as involved in the child's life. It could be you know, two single women that have helped co-parent. Mm -hmm. So there are situations where uh, having a second parent adoption bill or having the ability to have people that are not necessarily married but are also parenting would give legal security to the child. So we are about to go to break and today we are talking about understanding the myths of adopting a child. If you have any questions about adoption law, now is your chance and time to call 804-454-1366. This is Raising the Bar Greater RVA's Law Talk radio show and we will be right back after the break. You've been listening to Raising the Bar, Greater Richmond's premier law talk radio show. 
Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. Now, back to Raising the Bar. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. We are back to today's show. This is Colleen Quinn of the law firm of Locke and Quinn. And today we are talking about understanding the myths of adopting a child. And remember, if you have any questions about adoption law, now is your time to call in and get free information at 804-454-1366. And so uh, right before the break, we were talking about um, whether unmarried parents could adopt in Virginia, which is not yet the case, but right. is the case in other states. But there is a pending um, adopt a second parent adoption bill that's been introduced mm -hmm. uh, just recently um, where we're at least looking to see if we can move things forward in Virginia, yeah. um, where because a lot of other progressive states already have, and actually a number of conservative states too have second parent adoption bills. Social services often, you know, are in favor of having those kind of alternative, like you were talking about, grandparent uh, or relative situations where you have more than one person parenting the child. Right, right, and they don't want to be married because mm -hmm. you know grandma doesn't want to marry her daughter <laughs> right. or son. You know, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> right. Um, all right, so shifting gears a little bit, um, uh, let's talk about a term you hear a lot, um, open adoption. What does it mean to have an open adoption? Another mysterious term uh, with a lot of myths surrounding it. So um, some people hear the term open adoption and they think that that means that the placing parent or um, the birth parent is going to actually be co-parenting the child or somehow, you know, heavily involved in the child's life. and. Um, what open adoption actually means is that, um, in, from a legal sense, is that the placing parent is going to know who the adoptive parents are and have the ability to have some sort of ongoing contact mm -hmm. with them. Now, that could be minimal contact. That could be just a picture and letter update once a year. Um, or it could be more extensive contact, you know, uh, uh, picture letter updates uh, much more frequently. And even you come to the baby's uh, birthday party and mm -hmm. you come to the baby's or uh, the child's, um, you know, now first communion or, you know, you, you come to their kindergarten um, recital. And so it, it can be much more involved depending on the arrangement. Um, and in Virginia, like a, no a number of states, we have something called a post-adoption continued contact agreement, which we use the term, the acronym PACCA, P-A-C-C-A. And most, the majority of states have um, it, the ability to have enforceable PACAs or ongoing uh, placement ag uh, communication agreements. And so this has become much more prevalent um, throughout the United States is to have some sort of an ongoing contact agreement. So that concept of open adoption really means I'm going to, that if I'm the placing parent, I get to select my family. I get to know who they are. I get to know a lot of information about them. Mm -hmm. I may even be able to see a copy of their home study if they're, if they're willing to share information to that 
level of detail. At a minimum, I'm going to get to know them and I'm going to see their adoptive parent profile that they put together. And then I'm going to have some sort of ongoing contact with them as the child grows and develops where um, they keep me informed um, through pictures and letter updates. It could be a Facebook page that they upload regularly. It could just be by texting. But one way or another, that placing parent's now going to be reassured um, that the child's doing well, and also they'll have their curiosity satisfied as to what the child looks like. Mm -hmm. So this is a very good thing, um, also because the child sometimes can, can get continued information about their their birth parent. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, sometimes these children of adoption, they romanticize that their placing parent um, is, you know, some big CEO of a, of a company when, in fact, their placing parent, parent is, you know, a 7-Eleven clerk down the street. And so um, grounding the child in more reality and having accurate information about your biological parents, again, psychologically can be a, a very good thing. So this whole concept of open adoption actually has been a very positive um, thing, especially in terms of reassuring that the placing parent getting additional information to the child as to how the child's doing, um, having the adoptive parents who oftentimes develop a very close relationship with mm -hmm. the placing parent, um, knowing that the placing parent is doing well, because usually that parent's placing the child because they're not in a good place in life at that time. Either they financially can't afford it or um, they're just not able to take care of themselves. You know, So for, for all different reasons, um, open adoption has been a good thing. But it doesn't mean that the place the, the placing parents going to co-parent the child right, right. <laughs> which is often misunderstood um so you spoke earlier about um children in foster care being you know some of the most um available but i also know you know you said they're usually older and it can take a long time for them to be freed up for adoption um why does it take so long for children in foster care to be freed up to adopt well when you think about our dss system um typically uh the Department of Social Services, and you can call it the Department of Children and Family Services mm -hmm. in other states. It gets called different things, but basically it's our government welfare, child welfare system. Um, the, the number one goal is to return the child home, mm -hmm. if at all possible. So what happens in a lot of these cases is that the child has been found to be abused or abandoned. Maybe the biological parents are on, 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 on drugs um, or they have an alcohol problem or they have a mental health illness. And so what happens is the child may be removed from the home, placed in foster care, and then what our child welfare system does is it's designed to give a lot of services to the biological parent to try to get them to the point where they we can put the child back in their home. Because the number one goal is you know, reunification, return home, and to basically allow that child to grow up with their biological family. Um, that can take some time, and typically there's a minimum of 18 months allowed for that biological parent to get their, their act together. Mm -hmm. um, but what happens as a reality is sometimes the child will return home, then there'll be another incidence of abuse, neglect, um, abandonment, and then the child will be removed again. And so uh, sometimes it will take a lot more time to see if you can rehabilitate the biological parent. And you and I, um, you know, we had the case where the uh, biological mother uh, was, was using pot mm -hmm. and she was a pretty much regular pot user. And the biological father was convicted on a felony um, for uh, drug distribution. And, and so he's in prison um, and the judge is bending over backwards to biological mom 
um, in terms of her pot usage. Mm -hmm. And so that child ended up, you know, being in foster care for more than four years, at which point dad gets released from prison. Dad is completely rehabilitated. And now dad steps back into the picture and starts to um, be able to have time with his son, et cetera. Um, and, you know, the issue is, okay, why is this child in foster care for so long? Mm -hmm. Well, because that judge was giving that mom the benefit of the doubt. Um, ultimately, in that case, um, mom shows up, as you know, at court yeah. and uh, says she's clean and everything. And uh, she fails the drug test then and there. Um, dad, he passes the drug test. He stays clean. And ultimately, in that case, um, child was returned home to dad. Um, but some five years later, after the child had been in foster care. Mm -hmm. And so we see those situations where it takes a long time for the child to be freed up. And then, of course, after looking at the goal of return home, the uh, DSS or whatever child welfare system it is um, that also has to look at relatives next mm -hmm. as the next option. So sometimes it takes a long time to sniff out what relatives are out there and what relatives um, are going to be suitable to take the child mm -hmm. in. And then, you know, sometimes you'll have a relative you didn't even know about come out of the woodwork. Um, so then DSS has to look and see, okay, what relatives might be suitable. Um, after that, what foster parents that have been caring for the child might be suitable. But we see a lot of cases where the child is in foster care for longer than we would have anticipated. And that's why it's taking so long to get some of these children freed up uh, to be adopted. And, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to make sure uh, as a number one goal that the child you know, can return to mm -hmm. their home. By the way, Katie, I've been using the term birth parent, um, and Adam Pertman, who wrote Adoption Nation, um, and all of the social workers that work in this field, um, do not find that to be a very flattering term, okay? <laughs> it's kind of like, it's, um, however, that term birth parent, um, or birth mother, birth father, is used in most of the statutes. Mm -hmm. So we lawyers tend to use that term, and it, it's it's not intended to insult anybody. I asked Adam, well, what term am I supposed to use? And he says, well, it's a, um, an expectant parent with a parenting plan. And I said, well, you know, we lawyers do get paid by the word <laughs> or the hour. <laughs> And sometimes it's not always an expected parent. It's one that's already delivered. Right. So how do we, you know, address that? But anyway, I don't want anybody to be insulted by the use of that term. It's a term that's steeped in our statutes, mm -hmm. and that's where it comes from. Okay. Um, so uh, switching to these, um, you know, we talked about the difference between agency um, placements and direct or parental placement adoptions. Um, what sort of services is an agency providing in an agency adoption versus um, what they might be doing in a parental placement adoption? Right. So in an agency adoption, I call that the all-inclusive mm -hmm. resort because it's pretty much including all of the services that are needed, um, the locating of the placing uh situation, the background information on the child, background information on the birth parents, counseling of the birth parents, um, matching with the adoptive family, um, making sure that it's, uh, if there's any ongoing contact agreement, that that's going to be uh, worked out, um, taking the actual entrustment or relinquishment. The only thing that might not be included in that all-inclusive resort is what I call the airline ticket, which is the <laughs> finalization of the of the adoption. Uh, sometimes that's included in the agency package, and sometimes the adoptive parents have to pay that separately. In the private or parental placements, I call that the a la carte, um, or, okay, as opposed to your fixed pre when you go you know to a restaurant and you have your 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 your, your fixed meal. This is the a la carte route. 
And believe it or not, in the adoption world, the a la carte route tends to be less expensive than the, the fixed pre or the all-inclusive route. So the agency services in the parental or private placement um, world tend to be more on uh, an ad hoc or a la carte basis. Uh, the agency will perform the home study. The agency might provide birth parent counseling. The agency will do whatever reports to court mm -hmm. are necessary. So in Virginia, uh, the agency will do the initial report to court and include all the information about the placing parents, the information about the child, um, the information about what fees have been paid, you know, that nobody's bought the birth mom a new red Corvette, you know, <laughs> and uh, basically uh, make sure that the court knows everything's been on the up and up. There's been no un underhandedness or anything going on, uh, what the ongoing contact arrangement is going to be. So the agency does all of these on an a la carte basis. And it gets confusing because um, in the private or parental placement or direct placement world, you still use an agency mm -hmm. for the a la carte services, but that is not an agency placement. So in these parental placements, and I know you've talked a little bit about it already, but this is one of the most common questions I think we get. Um, if you are trying to do a direct parental placement adoption, um, how do placing parents and adoptive families find each other? How do they match up? Right. And so it's it's the same way as if um, I needed my roof fixed and I knew you just had yeah. your roof fixed. I mean, yeah. like, you know. Katie, who did you use to have your roof fixed? And, yeah. and you're going to tell me. Um, it's pretty much just that good old-fashioned networking has been the, the number one way. So there are um, profile sites online mm -hmm. where adoptive parents can place their, their profile ad, their adoptive parent ad, essentially, and the uh, birth mother can find them directly that way. Um, however, and, and I actually have some clients that have advertised on Craigslist, uh, believe it or not. Um, but uh, for the most part, what a lot of adoptive parents will do is they will work on getting the word out. And now there are certain um, folks you can identify, like OBGYNs. You might want be able to give your, your adoptive parent uh, professional card, your business card, mm -hmm. to your OBGYN because they might know of a situation of an unplanned um, pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And there um, are certain groups that like Planned Parenthood that may or may not um, keep, you know, adoptive parent profiles on hand. But other than that, it's a little bit scattershot. Um, and, you know, folks will basically do their Christmas card mail out and let folks know that they're looking to adopt or on their Facebook page, or they will create a new Facebook page uh, devoted toward their adoption journey. Um, they might uh just get the word out through what I call e-blast. It might be, you know, you belong to a mm -hmm. book club, so yep. your book club group. I have several tennis teams, so I would make sure everyone on my tennis team knew. Um, if you had golf buddies. And then oftentimes we will tell folks to recruit, you know, grandma wannabes or grandpa wannabes yeah. or, you know, <laughs> or, you know, relatives to basically help out with get that word out effort. Um, but it's amazing how through former neighbors, former work colleagues, church is mm -hmm. a big one through you know the Bible study group, et cetera, people are saying, hey, I know about an unplanned pregnancy situation, and I know these other people that are seeking to adopt, and then those matches are happening. 
So um, you mentioned earlier, you know, you've, we've had people just post on Craigslist. Um, and you also said, you know, that the homestead home agency is going to have to be telling the court, you know, there's no red Corvette being exchanged here. Right. So <laughs> what are what are the rules in these types of situations when you're, you know, reaching out um, and also especially when it comes to, to money? Yes. Yes. Because there are folks out there that are, are that are children brokers. OK. And um, in Virginia, you can't pay basically a, a children broker. Right. To, to get you a child. Um, you can pay a licensed child placement agency in Virginia to get you a match. Um, but anyone else that matches you, even an attorney, you can't pay a match fee. So there are folks in the U.S. that are called facilitators, and even California, they're licensed facilitators. Um, but you can't pay a facilitator, or even a licensed facilitator, under Virginia law. So um, most of these matches are, are happening through unpaid intermediaries, you know, mm-hmm. where there's no match fee that's, that's being paid as part of the arrangement. So Virginia does carefully um, police what gets paid and, and what doesn't get paid. Adoptive parents can place an ad, and I meant, you know, I mentioned Craigslist. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes the, the publication will ask them to have their lawyer, me or you, mm-hmm. um, basically do a letter saying that they are legitimate and they are either home study approved or they're in the process of doing their home study. And so often we will do uh, letters oftentimes for publications. And I tell clients too, you know, hey, I, I went to William & Mary undergrad and they still have the flat hat. And if I was looking to adopt, I would run an ad in the flat hat for a small fee and the flat hat might want to mm-hmm. get a letter from the lawyer. Um, but, you know, that co-ed at William & Mary who has the unplanned pregnancy might see that ad while they're looking through, you know, the ads and seeing, okay, who's got, you know, a bunk bed available or right. whatever, you know, a loft. <laughs> um, or, you know, we went to uh, UVA for law school and they still have like the Cavalier dearly. And um, I also tell people, you know, for a, a small token, most churches, you know, um, will put your ad in the church bulletin right yeah um so uh pretty much there's there's nothing uh, illegal about posting an ad or on these online profile sites that's all permissible and what about um any money that adopting families give to placing parents are there rules on that in virginia yes absolutely so we have some pretty good restrictions on what can be paid in terms of living expenses Mm Um, and most states do. Most states have restrictions on living expenses. Um, now, some states don't. And I'll tell you about this lawyer out in L.A. in a minute. But in Virginia, uh, you can only pay living expenses to a placing parent if they have a doctor's note taking them out of work or saying that they can't work um, due to the to the pregnancy or the post-pregnancy delivery. So most um, living expenses in Virginia are, are capped at around three months, usually the last month of pregnancy and then the two months post-delivery. So, and those living expenses can also include assistance with that placing parents' uh, dependents. Mm -hmm. So, you know, food, shelter, clothing, et cetera. Um, But until we have that doctor's note, we, there can be no payments made. Um, Many other states are very similar, um, except uh, California and Utah tend, and other a few other states tend to ha- be a little bit looser in terms of living expenses. So um, we do have the fellow out in LA who is f- uh, out there advertising that birth moms can come fly to LA and live there and be taken on uh, daily shopping and beach trips. 
and um, basically then charging, you know, seventy to hundred thousand um, dollars for an adoption. So uh, that's why it's the wild, wild west. Yeah. You know? so, yep. you, um, but but that's it's not necessary to pay that much money to be able to effectuate an adoption. Right, and not legal in Virginia. <laughs> right, and not legal in Virginia it would not be a legal payment in Virginia. Exactly. Um, so if, a, if a, this is, of course, you know, another really big question we get a lot. If a placing parent says she wants to place a child for adoption, um, can she change her mind and how long does she have? And it varies from state to state, as you know. But in Virginia, um, if she's doing a parental placement, she still has to come to court and give her consent. And this is we're not talking about step parent adoptions mm-hmm. or relative adoptions where she can do an out of court consent. We're talking about just, you know, folks that are not relatives, not step parents. Mm-hmm. Um, she has to come to court and give her consent. The baby has to be at least three days old, and then she has seven days to revoke or change her mind or undo the consent. Mm-hmm. Now, it gets a little crazy, and we have, to, we have to kind of map it out sometimes, but if she comes to court and the baby is already 10 days old, then she can waive her seven days revocation. I, I call it the seven-day agony period because it's with most first moms I've worked with, they say it's another seven days that they're the one hanging over their head. Mm-hmm. And it's, of course, another agony period for the adoptive parents. It's another seven days hanging over uh, their head, too. Right. Um, there might be some situations where we want her to keep the seven days because um, maybe we haven't terminated birth dad's rights mm-hmm. or something. Um, so there are some such situations. But for the most part, most birth moms will waive the seven days once they get to that seven-day mark. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, consent revocation periods... Um, in other states, they just vary dramatically. In some, it can be up to 30 days. And in other states like uh, Kansas, you know, they can sign an irrevocable uh, out-of-court consent 48 hours after birth. And so you sign 48 hours or more after birth, and it's a done deal at that point. You don't get any mm-hmm. chance to revoke. Um, so that's in a parental placement. In a agency placement in Virginia, um, the birth mom will sign an entrustment agreement and typically we'll have, uh, again, up to seven days or until the baby is 10 days old or until the child is placed in the adoptive parent's home. Mm-hmm. So in the agency placements, the birth mom oftentimes will sign her entrustment before a social worker for that agency at the hospital, um, usually right before she's released from the hospital, about two days after birth, maybe three days if she has a C-section. And then uh, she gets um, the greater of either the seven days or the up to 10 days after birth or the until the child's placed in an adoptive parent's home. Okay. Um, and what about birth fathers? What sort of rights do they have? Um, so it depends on whether they are a putative birth mm-hmm. father, which is a funky term, not punitive, but putative birth father. And that would be one that is not married to the birth mom, that has not been established by DNA testing to be a dad, that's not on the birth certificate. So this is um, an, an unmarried um uh, unlegally determined dad. And in that case, a putative dad, if we know who he is and where he is, we send him notice of his right to register with the Virginia Putative Father Registry. Mm-hmm. And he has 10 days from the mailing of the notice to register if he wants to continue to get notice of the adoption proceedings. Um, if he is not a putative dad, but he is what we call an adjudicated, which means that there's a, a court order mm-hmm. that says he's dad, or he's an acknowledged, which means that the birth mom has either um, 
uh, included him on a tax return or put him on the birth certificate, um, or he is a presumed dad, which would be one that was like legally married to the birth mom. If he's one of those dads, then we have to give him actual notice of the adoption proceedings. And then they can, a birth dad in Virginia can sign a consent prior, anytime prior to the birth, um, before a notary mm -hmm. or after the birth. They can come to court and give their consent along with the placing mom. Um, they can also just sign a denial of paternity. I just flat out deny him the dad. And they can sign that either before the birth or after the birth, and then that'll address their rights. Um, and Virginia's scheme is not that different from other states, but mm -hmm. every state is very specific in terms of how the birth father's rights can be addressed. So that putative dad, if he does register, um, now he falls into the same category as the acknowledged or adjudicated or presumed dad. Now he's entitled to actual notice of the adoption proceedings. Okay. Um, what about other family members? Do they have rights um, or can they have ongoing contact or how are they involved in uh, in these cases? You know, um, grandparents and other parents have standing to intervene in an adoption proceeding, but ultimately it's up to the biological parent's decision. Mm -hmm. And so we've had cases where the grandparents have tried to intervene in the adoption proceedings and basically the court says no that the biological parents have a fundamental right to decide whether to parent or not parent um, and those have been difficult cases we even had the case where both sets of grandparents showed up at the court hearing and the the you know the mom and dad young folks just did not want to keep the child within family they didn't mm -hmm. you know want their grand their parents to adopt and so we had to uh, basically continue the case and come back on a date where the grandparents didn't know about the proceedings so that the birth parents could go ahead and give their consent. That's that's what they wanted, and mm -hmm. they were entitled to do that. What happens if they're minors? You mentioned that they were young in that case. Um, do they have to have parental consent then, or what's are there special accommodations made? Great question, because in Virginia and in most states, actually minors are, um, allowed, are treated as adults for the purpose of consenting. Now, that said, if they are under 18... Um, um, the, I can't imagine a single judge in Virginia that wouldn't appoint a guardian ad litem for them um, as part of their consenting process. Mm -hmm. But ad adoption's uh, one area. And what's interesting is they still have to get parental consent if they want to abort. Okay. But you, but you, but as, and if you want to do the adoption, you can go ahead and consent to your adoption without having a parent right. involved. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting how there's a difference in uh, those two, um, two areas yeah you know definitely so we are about to close out the show today and uh, we've been talking about understanding the myths of adopting a child and um, if you have questions about adoption please go visit the adoption and surrogacy law center's website um, which is just www.adoptionsurrogacylawcenter.com or if you Google Adoption and Surrogacy Law Center, it will come up. Another great resource is the Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproduction Attorneys website. And we're on the, when I say we're, I'm on the board, we're in the middle of redoing that website. And that's going to uh, contain a lot of really good information, um, especially as we add content to that site. So thank you so much for joining us today. And please tune in next week for Raising the Bar Law Talk Radio Show next Wednesday at 9 a.m.